The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing there? Great, Father. It's good to see you. Yes, you too. Uh, any prayer requests as usual, Father? Yes, there are prayer requests as usual. <laughs> and uh, of course, I ask everyone to please well, continue praying for our, our country because uh, our country's in trouble right now, right? Uh, being attacked from uh, without and especially from within, right? So we need to pray uh, that we are, well, we pray for our country being justified of its crimes against God, uh, denial of the kingship of Christ and its promotion of abortion and all matter of other evils and perversions, uh, we have to pray that she be delivered, our country be delivered from these things. And uh, then that our country be, well, sanctified by grace, that we can serve God's will and um, uh, have faith and hope and charity in Him, right? We have to pray for our people that they they have that. And um, of course, I, I do ask your continued prayers for uh, Paul Riley. Paul is still, well, we pray recovering <clears throat> from the terrific accident, the terrible accident that he uh, he, uh, he suffered. And um, uh, we pray for Tom Wright, also a man who's had very severe heart problems. Uh, it's kind of hanging between life and death now. Please keep him in your prayers that uh, he also be well for his family as well as for his own sake. And, um, of course, we have young Blaze to pray for, right? And um, we have uh, Donna um, their cancer that she's battling, and uh, and Joe Percher, uh, Joe a valiant soul has been suffering with illness for quite some time now, and that weighs very heavily. It's a heavy cross, but uh, you know there are those who carry it uh, that cross very patiently and perseveringly, and uh, we've got some marvelous examples of that perseverance uh, right here close to home. You know, and uh, there are many others too. I, I, I ask you to please continue praying for uh, for the deceased. Continue praying for Del Selway and his family. Uh, Del, Del passed away recently, as you know. Uh, pray for Sister Mary Joseph and for Sister Mary Cecilia and for Sister Mary Dolorosa, all of whom who passed away recently. Well, within the last several years, in any case. Um, Sister Mary Joseph most recently, though. And uh, again... Um, there's there are so many many souls I ask you to pray for, even if you were to single out an individual priest and say, uh, ask Almighty God to have mercy on all of the prayer intentions of an individual priest. That would be a substantial number of prayer intentions already. Uh, at every mass, uh, I ask God at the memento of the living and the memento of the dead to have mercy on all of the souls for whom I, I am personally responsible. Um, 
both living and deceased, as I say. Um, so um, uh, practice that I have is whenever ever anyone is recommended to me in prayer or for prayer, I immediately, as it were, enclose them in the heart of our Blessed Mother as the, we're a, a divine locket, you know, containing, uh, containing that intention. And Our Lady, of course, as a true mother, never forgets and uh, her love uh, always embraces those who uh, who are presented to her in prayers. We pray in the memorare. Never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. And so uh, we have confidence that she will keep those intentions in her heart. She knows them all, and she presents them to our Lord, her divine Son, uh, with her influence. That's uh, that's very powerful prayer on her part. <clears throat> so even if one were to pray for those who were commended to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, that would already be a very, very powerful prayer for a lot of souls. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> All right, we can do that. Thank you, Father. Well, uh, Father, we thought we could perhaps start tonight with some uh, news of the day. There was um, a terrible shooting in the Nashville, Tennessee area at some uh, private, I believe it was a Presbyterian uh, elementary school. Uh, I believe there were six, uh, six people who died in this shooting. Um, there's, it's been all over the news, Father. There was talk of the uh, shooter being identifying as a, a transgender um, person. So, Father, uh, what is a Catholic, Catholic reaction to this terrible event today? Well, great sorrow, uh, for one. I mean, we, we grieve for those on earth who suffered the great loss of their loved ones. I mean, nine-year-old children, three nine-year-old children, two little girls and one little boy, were just gunned down by this uh, person. And, um, and then three adults also, including the, the leader of the school and a, a janitor of the school. And a substitute teacher. Uh, they were all about 60 or 61 years old. And uh, we grieve, of course. Um, we, we pray for those souls. We, we, grieve for, uh, we grieve for the families that lost them. But we especially grieve for our Lord, who is, of course, the one who had to suffer for all of these. Who had to suffer for all of these souls and suffer for the sins involved in this terrible thing. So, I mean, all of these things ultimately are evil because they, they offend God. That is what's, what makes it sinful. Something offends Almighty God. Um, and uh, this was a, a tragedy and also a, a momentous sin. Uh, but, you know, we think about the shooter, too. Uh, it was Audrey Hale, right? 28 years old. Um, Autistic, as the vast majority of these transgender people, so-called transgender people, because it's impossible to transgender. I mean, uh, what you are biologically, of course, they want to deny the biology of it all and absolutely deny, you know, just insist that it, that doesn't count, right? It's how I, I feel or how I identify at the moment uh, that makes me what I am. Uh, that is like the extreme of existentialism there. 
it's existentialist madness, but it is. But uh, we cannot change our, uh, our our chromosomes. We cannot change our chromosomes, no matter how much uh, violence we do to our outward appearance or our inward thinking and mentality. We cannot change our chromosomes, and so we are identifiably male or female. You know, um, and this is a mental illness, and. Uh, it, it causes such stress on the individual person. As I say, uh, I've heard, seen figures that at least 80% of those who actually, um, you know, style themselves as, as transgender uh, actually have some degree of autism. And um, I'm not sure what studies are involved in that, but um, this is uh, going around, and I, I think there's, it's probably quite accurate. And they're probably under some form of mental treatment, too, for some mental syndromes or uh, situations. But as this, this one, one, Audrey Hale, was uh, undergoing psychiatric care. And uh, I understand she was using psychotropic drugs. And I understand this, this is also one of those common denominators among these shootings, whether by transgenders or, or others, um, that psychotropic drugs are often involved. Uh, in the lives of those who do these shootings, whether they're taking them at the time or had taken them already. <clears throat> also, uh, video games, uh, immersing themselves in video games. So, so life for them became itself virtual reality. <clears throat> so uh, mental illness, yes, definitely involved here. And uh, again, the mental illness can be uh, fostered, imposed, encouraged by the, the insanity of the society we live in, as we have uh, corrupt people uh, making laws, enforcing laws, judging laws, uh, in uh, creating a, a very dystopian society, uh, creating the society, uh, politicians, um, and, and just those in power in general, uh, creating this mad madness in society which breeds such uh, criminal attacks. And then, of course, the reaction is immediately take guns away because guns are the problem. Um, but, um, you know, there, there have been many times in our history where guns were very, very common, and we didn't have this going on until these, uh, um, the, these, what should I say, godless politicians um, and um, these uh, pretend to be godly, pretend, pretend to be godly politicians took over and uh, began to so distort um, any, any vestige of Christian society that uh, this is what happens. It's so tragic, it's just so sad. But we see it as part of the big picture. And, um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it, it is really un unfortunately necessary for those who are indeed God-fearing and those who have faith to uh, have the ability to defend themselves right now. And um, those at the, uh, at the school, I think it was called Covenant Christian, was it? I think so. Uh, in Nashville area, um, 
did evidently not have that means of defending themselves or protecting themselves against this. They must have heard the shooting as this uh, woman uh, shot out the glass doors to get, get entry and then uh, went and prowled around the building to kill them. The people must have heard the shooting and I guess they had no means of, uh, of defending themselves. And if we allow the leftists uh, from the White House all the way down um, through the media uh, to, um, to have their way, none of us will have any means of defending ourselves against this madness that they're creating. Yeah. So in any case, uh, pray for the victims, heaven, heaven knows. Um, but, you know, learn, learn from this too, what, whatever can be learned from it. And uh, one, of the, one of the important things to learn about it is that um, th when madness is, uh, is induced in a society, um, that this is where they turn. One, one thing we, we do notice, though, um, supposedly there have been 100, this is what I heard, the figure I read, 130 school shootings since the beginning of the year, just this year alone. I don't know if they mean in the course of the last 365 days or they mean since the turn of the year on January 1st. I didn't get that. But um, they seem to target schools because they're, they consider them to be easy or soft targets. <clears throat> and um, in fact, this one, uh, this Audrey Hale, who, who called herself Aiden <clears throat> online, and uh, she... Um, Supposedly, her first choice would have been a shopping mall. She wanted to target a shopping mall. She wanted to target her own family. But she felt that uh, those two targets would be more difficult. So she chose the, uh, the, the softest target of them all. And that tells you something. Uh, when our schools need to be under armed guard, you know, there's something wrong, seriously wrong with our society. Uh, by the way, her own parents, uh, uh, was it Norma and Ron, I forget, but her own parents uh, said they knew she had a gun at one point and they, they had made her get rid of it because they didn't trust her. Uh, they did not approve of her so-called lifestyle. Now, the transgenders are all baying that this is what drove her to this. Well, I'm sorry, uh, well, I'm not sorry to say that no, that didn't drive her to this. What drove her to it was her lifestyle, her choice of so-called lifestyles uh, drove her to this because we see that uh, of those uh, shootings, there are a string of them that have been committed by these non-binary transgender type. And I would say it's not a mystery as to why you would find violence in people like that, in people who think like this. They're already under psychiatric care in many cases and uh, have identifiable you know, problems. But also, when, when, you, when you so completely distort and warp the, the passions, because that's what we're dealing with here, when you so completely distort and warp the passions so that one's entire life becomes about their passions, about themselves, then why would we not expect. I mean, we have to expect that those passions are going to be simply out of control, that they're going to go berserk. And these are people who are, are trying desperately to fit into a mold where 
that that's impossible for them really to, to do. And they're highly, as they say, conflicted and involved in conflict. But it starts within themselves. So why would we not expect their passions to just go completely berserk? And um, their their whole concept of reality is, is twisted and distorted. We have to expect there to be a certain danger in that. It's like holding a flame to a, you know, a container of gasoline. You know, well, surprise, surprise, what happens over and over again? So uh, the solution, the, the solution has to be supernatural. It has to be God's grace. It has to be faith, hope, and charity. And uh, when you build an entire society around abortion, as the Democrats have, it's built upon violence in the womb itself of motherhood, an attack on motherhood, an attack on everything, uh, the God-given value of human life. So it all follows necessarily. Wow. Okay. Well, certainly very sad, Father, but we will uh, pray for all those involved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why I say pray for our country, too. From- that our country be delivered from this madness. Yes, Father. Okay, well, um, maybe on a lighter note, Father, if we could answer some viewer emails. We um, we have a great one here to uh, to start us off. Uh, say question regarding Scripture. Uh, this viewer writes in and says, um, we have a question pertaining to the man in Scripture who was possessed by legion. How is it that when Jesus was exercising the man before the demons jumped into the swine, they were telling Jesus, we know who you are, and he rebuked them. But when Satan was tempting Jesus in the desert, Satan did not know who Jesus was. How is it the demons knew him, but Satan did not? Well, at the time that our Lord was fasting for 40 days in the desert, uh, the demons still did not know. Lucifer himself did not know. He suspected, but he did not know for a fact that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter would later profess. Uh, So Lucifer came on an exploratory mission, as you know. But uh, when those three temptations of Lucifer failed so miserably, to influence our Lord, Satan then knew who our Lord was. Having failed in those three temptations of turning the the stones into bread to feed our Lord, uh, casting him down from the temple uh, to, as it were, tempt God to save him, and then uh, the temptation of the glory of the kingdoms of the world which Satan offered our Lord if he would fall down and worship Satan, Uh, by that time, Satan knew who he was dealing with. And so Satan's missions failed in one way, but succeeded in another. He failed to successfully tempt our Lord, but the very fact that he failed in this also answered the question as to who Jesus was. And so from then on in, in the Gospel, we read that demons did know who our Lord was, and our Lord would silence them. Um, so I, I hope that is something of an answer to the question. Um, I'd like to have um, that passage from Cornelius Alapide to refer to, 
uh, perhaps next program we'll actually have the authoritative statement of the great exegete, the biblical scholar Cornelius Alapide, to instruct us in this. But this is uh, the best answer I have at the moment in any case. Okay. But it's a good question, though. Yes, that's Okay, uh, another one. This viewer says, Hi, Father, I came across the first apology of St. Justin Martyr to the Emperor Antonius Pius. The document talks about the Holy Eucharist in one of the paragraphs. Could you, Father, talk about what this means historically for the doctrine of transubstantiation, or transmutation, as St. Justin calls it, and how it affects the historical prerogative of many Protestants, that is, that the faith was lost with Constantine and rediscovered by Martin Luther, and that the Eucharist was more or less an invention of the emperor, when clearly we have an apostolic bishop talking about it? Well, again, that's a very good question. And I'm glad that you found the uh, first apology of St. Justin Martyr. And you might go on to read his second apology and his dialogue with the Jew Trifon also. Um, St. Justin was a philosopher, and uh, he had found his way, well, I can't say he found his way, by the grace, grace of God, he embraced the, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And because he was a prominent philosopher, this actually uh, created a bit of a sensation. Um, he had a certain amount of notoriety among the philosophers, and uh, he was a very highly educated individual. He would actually engage the philosophers, the pagan philosophers, in... Um, a kind of debate, and uh, he would always upheld, uphold the faith in Christ. Um, so Justin Martyr was, um, a, you might say, a standout in his time, at a time when there was not a lot of public discussion between Christians and pagans. Um, and there was even the Disciplina Arcani, the discipline of the secret, so that the faith in Christ would not be held up to ridicule. St. Justin Martyr was a public figure. Not only did he speak openly of the faith, but he did address an open letter <coughs> to the emperor, uh, the emperor and his two sons. The emperor was Antoninus Pius and, at the time. And one of his sons was Marcus, the famous Marcus Aurelius, so called philosopher emperor, <coughs> and another great persecutor of the church. So um, Justin Martyr, who uh, was not a, not a bishop, um, actually did, um, you know, undertake the, the role of apologist. Um, when he was one of the great apologists for the faith. Living about the year 165, um, his, his death would have occurred probably about the year 165, 170 AD. So he was very early on. And I think uh, the writer there calls him an apostolic bishop. I think the apostolic meaning that he, uh, he learned the faith from the apostles. Um, however, St. John the Apostle uh, was the last of the apostles, surviving apostles. And he probably died before St. Justin learned the faith, or came to the faith. So there are the apostolic fathers, and he was one of them, because he came from the age of that, that, that age, uh, the period of time. There are others, like uh, such as St. Ignatius of Antioch, who actually did learn the faith directly from St. John the Apostle. But St. Uh, Justin Martyr probably was of the next generation after that. 
And uh, but what that tells you is he was explaining in his ap- apologia, apologia, he was explaining what the the Christians actually believed at that time. And uh, that was that is very instructive for us because we see it is the Catholic faith. It is the Catholic faith. It is not Protestant teaching. It is the Catholic faith that they believed, and that is the faith that Justin Martyr professed, and it was that for which he died, right? Professing that faith in Christ. And uh, this is a prime example that our writer brings up in Numbers 65, 66, 67 of that first apology. St. Justin talks about the Mass. He talks about, uh, he doesn't talk about it in particular, he doesn't go into detail, but he gives the kind of the the general order of the Mass, how it proceeds. Um, and it is the traditional Mass. It coincides perfectly with the traditional Catholic Mass. Uh, not only the traditional Latin Mass, but the traditional rites of Mass, of all of the different rites, uh, Eastern and Western, uh, or Latin rites. It coincides that. So the Mass was being offered back then, and Justin Martyr attended it. He knew it. He described it. <clears throat> but he then went into a discussion uh, about the Holy Eucharist, about the, the actual, what well, you and I would know as the blessed sacrament, the most blessed sacrament, the real presence of Jesus Christ's body and blood. And um, he, he explains it very powerfully. Now again, in order to appeal to anyone who styles himself Christian, to uh, go back and read what the gentleman is speaking of here. Um, Because St. Justin Martyr is very explicit in talking about the reality of the body and blood of Christ. He even says that just as the body of of Christ was born of the Virgin Mary and uh, suffered and died on the cross, so this is the actual body of Jesus Christ that we have here. Uh, This is not merely a figure or representation. This is the body of the crucified, died, buried, risen, glorified Christ here, um, actually living there, um, present before us, and this is the actual blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, as even as Jesus said at the Last Supper, it would be the body that would be crucified for him, for, for us, and the blood that would be shed for us. So he's very, very clear about that. And uh, one may say now, well, I don't believe that, but one cannot say that Justin Martyr didn't believe it, because he did. It's all too clear. <clears throat> and he represents what the Christians of that time believed, just the second generation after the apostles themselves. Um, you know, when, when our Lord uh, first promised to give his body and blood to us, uh, to nourish us, physically and spiritually, um, there were many who had followed him. Many of those had actually received the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes just the day before. And when our Lord promised this, they turned and walked away from him. And uh, they were being honest. They said, who can listen to this? This is a hard saying. Uh, They took it in a gross materialistic sense, as unfortunately many of the Protestants do today, but unlike those who honestly would not accept Christ's teaching and walked away from him, 
there are those today who will profess his name and say that they're Christians, and they do not walk away because they do not reject this teaching. They, they, they reject this teaching, but they don't have the honesty to say, well, Christ did teach this, but we don't accept it. They should just come out and say it. We, Christ did teach this, but we don't accept his teaching. Um, but uh, and, and they, they, they actually present themselves as, as ministers of Christ, even in the process of rejecting his, his very clear teaching and the very clear belief of the early Christians in the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, so that, that does show, I think, the, the, the fact that Protestantism really is a fraud. It is uh, professing the name of Christ, even in the very act of denying his words and his teaching and the faith of the early, early church. Um, so uh, I don't know what more he can say about that, uh, but I, I think this gentleman sees very clearly the consequences of mm -hmm. that profession of faith of St. Justin Martyr. Okay. Uh, faith for which he, he lived and faith for which he died. Yep. Um, his feast day is April 14th, and uh, the church to this day commemorates his, uh, his conversion to Christ, his, his love for our Lord, his willingness to give his life for our Lord. We still invoke him even now in the, in the glory as he is in the glory of heaven. So we should pray for our, as they say, Protestant brethren, that they, <laughs> that they actually come to faith, that they mm -hmm. accept the faith of Christ. Yes, that's right. Okay, very good. Um, Father, in a recent program, uh, you talked about the situation in the church and how um, you know people are looking for different solutions and... Uh, one of the things you said is that some people were, quote-unquote, jumping to Orthodox, jumping to the Orthodox, and one of our mm -hmm. viewers wanted to know, why is that a mistake, Father? Why is that such a bad thing, to go to the Orthodox? Well, they may think that by leaving the Novus Ordo, the new order after Vatican II, and, and now Francis with his synodal church that he's creating, uh, uh, the, uh, there are those who, who may think that they are escaping from uh, the madness of modernism, of uh, the Novus Ordo and Francis, but they're actually jumping from the frying pan into the fire, the proverbial frying pan into the proverbial fire in joining the Orthodox. Now, the Orthodox um, have their own view of things, and I'm afraid many of them actually believe believe what they're saying. They believe it's true. They would like to, to pretend that the early church was uh, basically what they now style as their orthodox church. Um, it was not. Historically, it is not. The orthodox, over a period of hundreds of years, actually broke away from the church that Christ established, which is the, the Catholic church. And uh, they pursued their own way. You, there's historically, it is true. You you go to the earliest, you go to the earliest uh, centuries of the church's existence, and you, you find when you do any research and not just take their word for the the falsehoods that they spread and the distortions that they spread, even many of them unwittingly, you find that uh, the church in Rome under the Bishop of Rome, who was the, the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff, uh, really did have authority 
and that the various uh, churches in Antioch and Jerusalem and uh, and um, Alexandria, they all recognized that uh, primacy of the successor of Peter in the See of Rome. And it's a fact, they did. Um, already uh, about the year 100, uh, we might say about the time that St. John the Apostle was still alive, um, there was the, the third successor of St. Peter in Rome, uh, the others having been put to death and died as martyrs, beginning with Peter, uh, Clement, known as Clement of Rome, and uh, he had to actually intervene in a controversy in the church in Corinth. Corinth is in the east. It's in the Greek church, Greek-speaking part of the church. And um, the Pope had to intervene there in a controversy. And his intervention was accepted. It was honored. The letter that he wrote, and again, just as with St. Justin Martyr, uh, the historical record is there. One can find that in translation, in English translation, and read what St. Justin, what St. Clement of Rome wrote to the Corinthians about what they should do to solve the problem. Uh, he was exhorting them in their faith, but he also was telling them that what was happening was unacceptable and they had to correct it. And he told them how, and they obeyed him. And uh, I understand that for the following 200 years, at least, that uh, the letter of St. Clement to the church in Corinth was honored and read aloud in the church as a, an example of uh, true Catholic teaching to which they should all adhere. That is the true voice of authority there. I mean, you have St. Irenaeus, uh, Brother Ignatius, well, we have Irenaeus, and we have the testimony of Irenaeus, uh, also, you know, about the year 200, about, about 100 years later, uh, testifying to the line of successors of St. Peter. And he talks about how that, that is the, the central, pivotal point, as it were, for the Church to determine what is truly orthodox, what is truly orthodox in the true sense of the word, meaning what is truly Catholic, okay, not the orthodox as the you know, Orthodox churches have distorted the meaning. Um, so again, you know, Rome was the reference point for the, the Christian world at that time. You find the controversies over baptism, um, whether baptisms done by heretical sects should be accepted as valid or not. That question was referred to Rome. You find the question of whether the lapsi, those who had fallen away from the faith and denied the faith to avoid persecution, should then be received back into the church after the persecution had passed. The question was referred to Rome and to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. Time and time again, the historical record shows that the various centers of, of, of uh, Christendom uh, forming, I'd say, nascent Christensen, um, referred to the Pope for decisions, for judgments in the matter. Uh, the various matters that, that inevitably came up as far as governance and the primacy of Peter, as it is called, 
uh, and his successors in Rome were always recognized and understood. Um, so those, this is you know what made the church the, the Catholic Church. Uh, they were regarded as a Catholic Church because it was all in union with the See of uh, Sea of Rome and the See of Peter. Um, that is that is precisely why. Um, the Freemasons determined that they had to gain control of the Sea of Peter, and why in the early 1800s they mapped out that, that plan to in, infiltrate the church for the purpose of uh, seizing control by stealth of the Sea of Peter. And we see how successful they've been in uh, getting uh, their men in, not men necessarily Masons themselves, but men who think very much naturalistically, and like Masons do. This is what they proposed to do. They said that Nubius did not say in the 1800s document, which we now know as the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, which every traditional Catholic should be aware of, Nubius did not say, we Masons want a Mason to become the Pope. He said just the opposite. He said we want someone who thinks like a Mason to become the Pope. Um, and we have Francis now as a prime, well, I, we, we have to call him Exhibit A uh, right now, that they've succeeded. And um, uh, now he's an agent, their agent, right, in the papacy. Um, and he doesn't even believe in the papacy any more than he believes in the Catholic faith. But in any case, uh, I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves there. <laughs> so what? Um, but the fact is that when, when the church was established by our Lord, okay, uh, upon his death on the cross, his resurrection, his, uh, then at his ascension, sending the apostles out, as we read in St. Matthew chapter 28, verse 28, <clears throat> to preach the gospel to all creatures, to baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and to instruct all to observe what he has commanded them. And our Lord commissioned them and then sent them on a retreat for nine days. And then the Holy Ghost came upon them and they began their apostolic labors that very moment after the reception of the Holy Ghost. We find the missionary efforts of the church through the apostles brought, bore great fruit. We found that there were centers uh, of civilization, civilization at that time uh, that became what we now know as the patriarchal seas, or the sea, the seats of the authority within the church. Uh, we see, we see, of course, Rome, where Peter himself came to reside after seven years in Antioch. He spent the last twenty-five years presiding over the church in Rome itself. We see the patriarchal seas of Jerusalem and uh, Antioch and Alexandria. <clears throat> arise very early and became very powerful centers of the, of the Catholic faith. And uh, we see that the first bishop of, of Jerusalem, uh, James, died already in the, in the, in the 40s. Okay? Was not in his 40s, <clears throat> but about the year 42. Uh, he suffered martyrdom and he had a successor there. In Antioch, we see Peter presiding over the church in Antioch for seven years. Uh, as it were, kind of preparing for his role now to go to Rome. 
And um, in Antioch, he would have learned excellent Greek and so many other things that he would need to know as the Pope. It was kind of a, a sense of a school for him uh, so that when he arrived in Rome, he actually could assume that, that position as the, 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 the chief among the apostles, you know. And uh, that such that the, the attention of the church throughout the, at the then known world would, would actually be brought to him. And um, also Alexandria, the Sea of Alexandria. That was established by Mark, who was Peter's companion. And so Mark was with Peter in Rome and actually recorded the gospel according to St. Mark, which was Peter's preaching there. And afterwards, it was Mark then who went to Alexandria, Egypt, the great, you might say, university town of the empire. And, um, and there also was the, the influence of Peter and the person of Mark there. So Peter's influence was everywhere. Uh, you know, it's obvious in Antioch where he, he actually established that, that sea of Christendom there. In Alexandria, where through Mark he established the sea of Christendom there, and of course in Rome where he personally resided, but even in Jerusalem where Peter rose at the Council of Jerusalem in the year 51 AD and spoke about receiving the, the Gentiles directly into the church. Uh, Peter's influence was everywhere. But we see it already from the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. We see that influence of Peter. So when the Orthodox deny the existence of the papacy, uh, they're denying something seminal in Christianity, something essential in Christianity, something that is the work of Jesus Christ in Christianity. They're denying that. And you might ask, how did they get there? Did they always deny it? And the answer was no. The, the, their predecessors in these seas of Constantinople and so on, they all recognized the primacy of Peter. It was only um, because of the political developments in the empire that they began to pull away and finally led to a break and a denial on their part of what was historically, absolutely, un inevitably, it, it was just the unavoidable truth <laughs> that, that no matter how much you deny, you can't escape the, the truth of the matter. Peter was given the, that commission by our Lord to feed his lambs and feed his sheep, uniquely given that position. Um, how, did, how did the Sea of Constantinople come along? The Patriarchal Sea of Constantinople, after, after Rome, after uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria. Well, when, when Constantine, um, 300 years after our Lord had died on the cross, risen and, and ascended into heaven, 300 years later, Constantine was the emperor, and he moved the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople and built up Constantinople as the new imperial city. There were many uh, consequences to that move uh, for, the, for the Pope in Rome. But if the, the papacy had been merely a, a creation of the church or a, an invention of Constantine, then by all rights and expectations, the papacy would have moved with Constantine from Rome to Constantinople. It did not. The Pope 
stayed in Rome. He knew that's where he belonged. And uh, the, the government of the empire moved hundreds of miles to the east. There were very severe consequences for the Pope's uh, staying in Rome, and he had to deal with those consequences for hundreds of years after that move of Constantine. Barbarian invasions and so on. But the fact is, the Pope was in Rome and was there as a successor of Peter by divine choice. It was God's will that he be there. The Pope knew that. The Church was not a Department of State. The Papacy was not a cabinet position in the government of Constantine. And the Pope proved that by not moving the government of the Church with the government of the Empire. Um, unfortunately, the, the Bishop of Constantinople then became Emperor Constantine's court chaplain. And because he was at the center of the imperial power and had the ear of the emperor, he began to style himself the rightful, the rightful, let's say, peer, equal of the pope and superior to the other patriarchal sees. And so Constantinople began to push itself higher and higher uh, in the status of the church over the other patriarchal sees with the collusion of the, of the empire, of the emperor himself. Not so much Constantine, but those who came after him, uh, his successors, they also, you know, thinking in very rather un-Catholic way, that, well, my goodness, since this bishop we have here is our bishop, he's our confessor, he's our advisor, he should certainly be, have some preeminence over the others. That was not the doing of the Christ, though. And so um, it finally got to the point where there was such an enmity on the part of the Bishop of Constantinople because he, he chafed against uh, allegiance to Rome and subservience to the See of Rome. Uh, that he, you know, there was this constant bucking against that. And so finally there was a breakage. It was uh, very no notably carried out in 950 under Photius and then restored uh, the connection with Rome. But then in 1054 under Marcel Charillarius, that connection was broken. And that's when the Orthodox churches actually came into being in the year 1054, a thousand years after the church was established by Christ, the Orthodox churches came into being. And one thing they all had in common was the allegiance to, the ties to, dependence on the local political authority and the local culture. It's as though they, um, they, lost, they just lost entirely the character of Catholic, the one universal church, and became very much embedded in and expressions of the, the culture of the place, the culture of the time, the culture of the people, and very much dependent upon the political power, which helps explain why the, the Russian Orthodox Church was in a position of being taken over by the Bolsheviks when they took power in, in, in Russia. Um, there were resistors, certainly there were among the Orthodox, but they should realize, though, that it was the very structure that they had accepted um, of, their, of their church uh, basically being tied to the culture and being tied to the political 
power of the place that made them that exposed them to that danger and um so I mean, many of their own priests became agents of uh, the Bolsheviks. And um, yes, there, there was resistance, but, but they have to realize that the religion uh, that they've ex accepted and the, the uh, orthodoxy that they've adopted was really a, a departure at actually broken, broken communion with the church that Christ himself had established. Because they decided to go their own way and unfortunately tie their wagon, as it were, to merely human uh, passing worldly phenomena like political powers and, um, and cultures. Anyway, there you have it. That wasn't exactly 25 words or less, I guess. But, uh, but one, one can find out for himself. I mean, one can examine the situation, even from an objective point of view, if he wanted to. Go look at, find, find the letter of St. Clement of Rome, Pope Clement of Rome to the Corinthians. See how he intervened there. Look at the history of the early church about these various controversies that came up and see where they, they, they actually referred to. I mean, even when there were councils in the East that the Pope himself did not attend, he sent legates, representatives there, and they reported to him the proceedings. And the decisions were made, and his decisions were binding. It's just history. Um, and um, even though the Orthodox may want to deny that or kind of bury that history, yet it's a matter of historical record. It's a fact. Yeah. Father, I think the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia has a great article on this, on, on the Orthodoxy. I, it, mm -hmm. um, I've read through it, and it seems to perfectly coincide with everything you've said here. Uh, good so point. Well. Yeah, one could easily go there and, and learn a great deal. Yeah. Certainly. And uh, the reason why orthodoxy looks attractive now is because you have the various orthodox uh, remnants uh, who've held on to their traditional liturgy and so on, um, which may go back, go back to the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, right? And uh, that is very attractive to traditional Catholics who want that, you know, that historical uh, tie and continuity. But it would be a mistake for a traditional Catholic to think, well, they have this uh, liturgy of uh, St. John Chrysostom and say that therefore that ties me back, you know, to the origins of Christianity when that ignores the break that came uh, uh, you know, from the, the, the very uh, structure of the church itself. And that's what orthodoxy represents. So even though it may have um, the, the outward, you know, appearance of being something traditional in terms of holding on to that liturgy, unfortunately, it's more of a cultural thing than a religious thing because the break took place from the universal church, the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this kind of you know, represents something else too. You see, traditional Catholics can be prey to a lot of schismatic movements right now. There are the old Catholics who now are saying, oh, now we're adopting the old Latin liturgy, so come to us. And one says, oh, look, they have Latin. They, they say Dominus Hoviscum. They have the Greek, Kyrie Eleison. So they're, they're traditional, so we're going to go to them. But the fact is, that's overlooking the fact that they are really schismatic. They're schismatic in their origin. They're schismatic in their 
in their structure, their systematic, and their teaching. And they're just using the traditional Mass as, uh, you might say, a form of traditional Catholic camouflage <laughs> to, uh, uh, to lure in traditional Catholics. And I would say the took, the took line also, I mean, it's based on something that is totally contrary to Catholic tradition. And yet, they, they are very effective at luring traditional Catholics to them, saying, here you can find your traditional Catholic faith. Well, at least here you can find your traditional Catholic religion and practice. But the problem is the traditional Catholic faith is something else there. And there has, there's definitely a, 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 an a, a aspect of schism to this that is not traditional Catholic. So again, traditional Catholics are in a position right now because of what's going on uh, to escape the Novus Ordo and the madness of modernism. Uh, they can be prey to falling into the wrong hands here. Uh, they have to be very, very wise and prudent in the choices they make and definitely find traditional Catholic priests who are entirely traditional, who have not done anything and not basing themselves entirely on, uh, on things that the church has always condemned. And, uh, and yes, there are traditional Catholic priests and bishops out there uh, who are fully traditional without having uh, turned to sects that are contrary to to the traditional Catholic practices that that the Church has always condemned. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Father, perhaps we can uh, save these emails. I wanted to um, ask you, Father, we uh, we're very quickly speeding to the end of Lent. Uh, mm -hmm. If we meet here next week, it will be Holy Week already. Um, so any words of encouragement for these final days of Lent, Father? Well, yes, we, we are in Passion Tide right now. So, uh, you know, we're in those, that two-week period uh, leading up to the great events of the Triduum. Um, our Lord's Last Supper, Passion, Death, Resurrection, of course. So we have to uh, walk with Him, as it were. Uh, you notice the expression in sacred scripture is that there are those who would walk with him uh, as though in a procession. Um, when our Lord promised to give his body and blood as our food and drink, in St. John's Gospel, chapter 6, it is fully recorded there. Uh, those who questioned our Lord and then found that he was speaking literally, that he meant exactly what he was saying, they turned and walked away, saying, this is a hard saying, who can listen to this? The expression in sacred scripture is, they would no longer walk with him. In other words, they would no longer be associated with him, because they felt that what he was teaching was uh, unacceptable. Uh, no wonder our Lord said, blessed is the one who will not be scandalized in me. They took scandal from what he, what he said there. When our Lord said very, very meaningfully, as it were, uh, blessed are those who are not scandalized in my teachings. And uh, really, those, those are traditional Catholics today. We're not scandalized by his teachings. The world will be because of its worldliness, but those who have faith will not be scandalized him, uh, by him because they realize he is the Son of God and he, uh, he has the power to do what he says, and even give us his own body and blood 
as our food and drink, to nourish us in this world, spiritually and physically. Now, with regard to, uh, to Lent, therefore, it's a time for us to follow our Lord <clears throat> even more closely. Uh, we, we try throughout all of the rest of the year to follow our Lord's teaching, to follow Him in prayer and meditation. Um, we are, in a sense, liturgically living His life, walking with Him during His public life or even from the manger itself, from the cradle. Uh, uh, we, we are walking from him throughout Advent and, and Christmastide, uh, throughout his, his childhood, into his public life, and then reliving those years of his public life with him, as though we are among those who are following as his disciples through the hills of Judea long ago. Um, hearing his word and hearkening to his word, hearing the word of God and keeping it. But during this time that he actually uh, is going to be entering the time of his passion, uh, we go with him there too. We will go with him into the Garden of Gethsemane on Holy Thursday night through Friday morning. And we will mentally and spiritually be there with him. Uh, we will be there as he uh, is taken prisoner and condemned. We'll be there standing with him. We know that John and Peter uh, did follow our Lord into the Sanhedrin to witness our Lord's being judged, but Peter ran out when he felt threatened and terrified and denied our Lord three times. Uh, but we will not do that. We will not deny our Lord as Peter did. We will stand with John, and we will there be present there with the Apostle John. And uh, we will witness our Lord then being marched off to Pilate and stand before him. And we will be there to witness that event. But unlike the others, we will not raise our voices crying, crucify him, crucify him. Quite the contrary, we will be uh, begging God's mercy uh, for ourselves and all of those. And we will be among those who follow our Lord on the way of his cross then. Um, step by step, step by bloody step, we will go. And we'll see the Blessed Mother uh, come to our Lord. We'll see Veronica's veil. We'll see Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus to carry the cross. And maybe even, hopefully, place ourselves there in the place of Simon of Cyrene. Uh, as though we should be honored to have been asked to help our Lord carry that cross. We'll actually do this mentally, spiritually, and, um, and then be among those who, who uh, were under the cross. We'll place ourselves in our mind, in our hearts, uh, even if we can presume to place ourselves among that little, little group who stood under the cross, the Blessed Mother, St. John, and Mary Magdalene. I fear, well, most of us, I'm sure, would find ourselves... Um, not placing ourselves between the Blessed Mother and St. John, but probably more uh, next to Mary Magdalene, where we belong as sinners. Uh, but nonetheless, she was there, and we place ourselves confidently along there also. And we will be there as witnesses of our Lord's sacrificial death on the cross, 
hear his seven words that he spoke there, take them to heart, ponder them, um, and we'll be witnesses of all of this once again. That's what we do during this, this Passion Tide, especially during Holy Week, and notably during the Triduum. Um, so um, we have to play, put away the, the things of the world uh, and focus on our Lord. Um, somebody had coming to the traditional Mass um, someone who, let's say, was used to Protestant worship uh, might find the traditional Mass very, very peculiar, almost eerie, because unlike in a Protestant service where you've got people jumping up, speaking in tongues, shouting amen, hallelujah, brother, whatever they're saying, and, and someone going on and on about, you know, what the Bible says, um, you, you find, when you walk into a traditional Catholic church, you find silence. And you find the people who are there, whether it be a mere handful, or a very crowded church where the pew is being filled, you find people kneeling down, not standing up, not sitting uh, all the time, but much of the Mass they spend kneeling down. And uh, together with that intense silence, as in the canon of the Mass, they're kneeling there, and they're not interacting. They're looking at the missile or they're looking at the altar. Some might be trying to attend to fussy children, but that's an anomaly. <laughs> they're, you know, in worshiping, they're actually looking, reading from the missile, or they're staring at the altar and following what is happening there. And that's another thing. You know, they find these pe people kneeling there, looking off into the distance at this little, little like, lone figure standing up there, before the altar, way off at the other end of the church, and um, and he's speaking very, very quietly. They might not even hear him speaking at all. So it seems like complete silence. And they say, this, these Catholics, they worship in strange ways, you know. And you say, well, how can you possibly explain this as a form of worship? And uh, praising and adoring God... Uh, and then you say, well, let, let me put it this way, okay, if you, if you went to Calvary, as we're supposed to do during this time, especially of the, of the Passion Tide, Holy Week, and the Triduum, if you went to Calvary, what would you see on Calvary? You would see a lot of people making noise, people shouting, um, some shouting to each other, some shouting at our Lord on the cross. Um, and these are the ones who are making all the noise. But the devout people who are there, out of love for our Lord, what were they doing? That's what we should be focusing on. Not what the world was doing around the cross, around our Lord, suffering and dying. But what about those who were there because they loved our Lord? What were they doing? And you'd say, well, they were, they were clearly not shouting and carrying on. They were actually ignoring all of that. They were oblivious to that, perhaps. Right, and that's true. Uh, they, were, they were wanting to be just drowned all of that out by the reality of what was happening before them. They were uniquely focused upon our Lord hanging on the cross. And that's where all of their attention was. Whether you're looking, talking about the Blessed Mother, or St. John, the Apostle, or Mary Magdalene, or the pious women who are somewhat removed but we're there witnessing this 
crucifixion of our Lord, they all would be uh, set apart from all of this hubbub that was going on there. The soldiers casting lots for the garments and, and, um, and all the rest. Um, <clears throat> they would have been silent and completely giving all of their attention <clears throat> to the, the very you know, the center of their love, our Lord on that cross. And they would have been there prayerfully. And uh, their hearts would have been united with their Lord's suffering for them, as our Blessed Mother's heart was there. And um, so this, this is what you'd find of the devout people who loved our Lord on Calvary. This is how they were there. So if you see the Mass as that very sacrifice that our Lord makes his very body and blood present there on the altar, even as he was present on Calvary, and uh, that the consecration of his body and his blood distinctly represents his death. And that's what our Lord presents to us, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This shows forth the death of the Lord until he come, until he come again. This is the, this is the Mass. This is true Christian worship. Then you, you can see why the Mass would be the way it is why the people are there doing what they're doing as they're doing it, then how could it be otherwise? That this is Calvary, and this is how it was for those who were on Calvary out of love and union with our Lord, to be present for him and with him there. Um, so maybe it's, it's not that shocking or startling for people who understand that who see it that way, who see what we see as Catholics and understand what we see, understand as Catholics through our faith in uh, why our Lord is there and not only how he is there, why he is there and what he is doing there. And what he is doing on the altar uh, at Mass, every Mass, is what he did on, on Calvary. Um, and by that I don't mean to say that he's on the altar bleeding and dying again because our Lord died once. But he's giving us that death. He's showing forth that death again until he come. The sacrifice of his great love for us, he's making present for us before our very eyes. His own body, his own blood. His own body crucified, died, buried, risen, glorified in heaven, even now, is present there with the wounds that he appeared to the apostles with on Easter Sunday night. And uh, those very same runes remain there, uh, as, as much on that altar as they were on that cross. They are the identifying wounds of Christ, and those who know him recognize him there, uh, because he promised that he would be there. That's a wonderful thing. You know? That's God's way of enabling us, every one of us, who love our Lord, who believe in him, and hope in him and love him, to be present again, even here, even now, at the sacrifice that he made for us, the sacrifice of his life for our salvation. And so he made it possible for us to call all of us to come to Calvary and to be present there, not just represented there, but to be present there through the Mass. Uh, wonderful thing, marvelous act of divine love, that our Lord would provide that for us uh, on that very night before he, before he suffered for us. So, during this time, we who have had the Mass throughout, throughout the year, 
now find our way through that mass to Calvary. And uh, we unite ourselves with our Lord there in a most special way as we commemorate in the most special way his sacrificial death for us. Um, so um, I just you know, recommend that our Catholic people uh, put everything aside, all worldly considerations aside, and uh, not be like the apostles who ran off and hid, not be like Peter who denied uh, our Lord, uh, be more like St. John the Apostle who stood there in support of our Blessed Mother and out of his love for our Lord. That's the, ex the great example the Church gives us right now. There's a lot more that can be said, uh, much more than has been written. Libraries worth of books have been written about the devotion here and Holy Week and so on, but hopefully this little uh, monologue would make some sense to someone and <laughs> be of some, some uh, help to orient them during this time. Sure. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for, uh, thank you for everything. Thank you for offering the Mass and making our Lord present oh, here for us. Absolutely. During all of this time, we, we have to have the words of our Lord uh, in our, resounding in our minds, I have overcome the world, right? I have overcome the world, and I've been with you all days, even in the consummation of the world. Um, so that, that is um, what should resound in our ears, even when uh, they're blaspheming him. As he's hanging on the cross, we hear his words uh, overcoming and drowning out their words, right? Right. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Well, thank you, Tom. God bless you, too. And I wish you a blessed coming Holy Week and, uh, and of course, uh, blessed resurrection. Right. You know, so, somebody once asked me, uh, you know, we, we have all these other feast days. We have, you know, the Good Friday, we have all so why, why don't we have a... An actual like feast day of the resurrection. <laughs> no. I said, "Well, actually, we we do. It's called Easter Sunday." I thought well, that that really is the feast day of the resurrection. That's yeah. that's how we should think of it. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Father. Absolutely. Thanks, so. thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.